0: Uh, You got to love those forced confessions.
1: (laughs) Right. Hey, guys, just a heads up real quick. We are live. Um, I've got the overlay on and I've got a pregame chat. up. So just so uh, you know, we don't have any uh, viewers just yet, but we are still waiting for Teddy. Um, She hasn't popped up yet, but yeah, we are. So we are live, um, but I do have it kind of emphasized as a pregame chat.
0: Okay. Well, then whoever sees this later on, welcome to CSG,
1: y'all. Exactly. CSG <laughs> is taking over. <laughs> but um, hey, where's David I mean, at? Is he in on this? Where's he at? No, David unfortunately is stuck at the DMV, man. Oh, and well, so what a dirty commie. Yeah, I know. <laughs> He's I never liked that guy, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. two viewers that are watching, one's not David. But, uh, if He's it is such a heretic, him. though. You know, he is. <laughs> Ain't he a heretic, though? I mean, whenever I think of the definition of heretic, I mean, David is who pops up in my mind. But no, I'm just playing. But for the two viewers that we do have watching, thank you all for joining us. This is the pregame chat. And so we are still waiting for Teddy. Um, she is on her way. Yeah, she messaged us earlier and we will get started here momentarily. Again, thank you for joining us. We got a good topic about the Shroud of Torin. We got the expert. We got uh, Dale uh, Glover with us uh, as well. Um, Kind of, what would you say you kind of 75%, 72% convinced? Uh, that the shroud is, you know, authentic is what it, you know, people say that it is. We have Joshua Davidson, my co-host from CSG with us, who's kind of a, you know, right at that 51%. And so, and then me, I'm, I'm more of the skeptic, I guess you could say uh, on this discussion. Uh, I I do have some things that I would like to uh, bring bring up and uh, yeah, we're, uh, we're waiting on Teddy. But. If,
2: if just this is like the pre stuff. If you want yeah. the exact percentage, I just kick, went to my kind of write up. Uh, okay. so it's seventy point one five
1: percent is <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> oh, what? Let me ask you this though, Joshua, real quick. What is the point one five? Like, is that just, is that an argument by itself, or or what is, is that, that your
2: bias
0: acknowledgement? just
2: yeah well it's it's the way i I went through it like um i always round to two decimal places because for whatever reason decimals come up when i'm building like a cumulative case but um
3: sure
2: yeah so uh that's just the way i am i always round to the nearest two two decimal places of percent but um yeah essentially when i get into my methodology there's three components to that um and then when i multiplied that together for that, uh, that's, that's where I ended up. But
1: yeah,
2: I'll, I'll explain that a little, a little bit more when we get to methodology.
1: Right on, right on. Oh, uh, Daniel Lowry has a question for you, uh, Dale, real quick. He said, Dale, are you employing Bayes?
2: Um, so I, I, was, I wasn't necessarily, in terms of the three things, it's just straightforward multiplication um, in terms of each of these elements. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't really use or need to use Bayes here. Um, in terms of the shroud of terrain, I'm I'm trying to think, I I only use Bayes' theorem when it's like a cumulative case, uh, trying to get a cumulative probability. Mm -hmm. Um, So once I got this number, this 70.15, and I had whatever percentage I had for the historical facts proving the resurrection, um, my vindication argument, then I plugged these into Bayes' theorem to get my total, is Christianity true or false type thing.
1: Fair enough. So since I don't know, what exactly is Bayes Theorem?
2: Bayes Theorem? So it's um, in probability calculus. It's it's a mathematical formula that um, essentially allows you to kind of calculate, Okay, what is the cumulative case probability? And the way I used it is, okay. so we have a hypothesis. Is Christianity true? Mm And when I was a non-believer, I said, okay, well, let me look at various bits of positive evidences. So, okay, we might have the shroud, the evidence from the shroud. Does that prove Christianity is true? Whatever. The evidence for the resurrection, you know, the, the tr- traditional Gary Habermas uh, type argument and that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And then on the other side, there's also negative evidences. So these are things that show, no, Christianity is false. Uh, so things like inerrancy issues, um, moral mistakes, um, human factors, so you know s- stuff like that. Um, and then I plug I assigned like my own subjective probabilities to each of these factors. Um, and then I plug that into Bayes theorem and it it tells you, okay, overall, you know, uh, what do you come out as? So, Back in 2018, I plugged in all these factors, and I came out to 53.14 mm-hmm. percent that Christianity is true. And it was that point that, well, it's more probable than not. So I became a Christian and uh, started doing my my thing as a Christian. Became an apologist.
1: Man, that is so interesting. I'd love to have you on CSG to talk about that. Just in and of itself, like uh-huh. how Bayes' theorem kind of goes into that. Man, uh, Daniel uh, did uh, or not more so of a question, more so of a statement. I think a Bayesian approach to the shroud would be a pretty fruitful route for future research. There's almost no discussion of epistemology in shroud studies.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely think it can be helpful. Kind of thing. I'm a huge proponent of Bayes' theorem um, and applying it um, and that sort of thing. I, I do I do get into some kind of epistemology myself. Um, obviously, we'll kind of cover that, at least in terms of like, how do we identify um, a given event um, such as the formation of the shrouds images? Well, how do we identify that as a sign? So I I do get into that um, aspect. So yeah.
1: Right on. Well, we did just hear from uh, Teddy. She is having uh, laptop issues. It isn't supporting the link, Um, so she's downloading Chrome. I think it has something to do with her Internet browser, but she is downloading Chrome right now and will be joining us uh, momentarily. So, again, to our guests that are watching, thank you so much for tuning in to the Shroud of Torn with Teddy Pappas, Dale Glover. I am your host, well, your co-host, Tyler Fowler, with my co-host from CSG. Uh, joshua davidson we're going to be getting into the history of the shroud of Torin, the science behind it skeptic claims and rebuttals and what the present like what's going on with the with the shroud now and what the future holds so we soon as teddy joins us uh we will get started here momentarily and yeah i dive into this josh how just i'm going to ask you this again but let me just. Well, actually, let me do this. What <laughs> What are your thoughts on Bayes' theorem? Um, since since that's kind of like what we're talking about right now. Um, do you have any uh, Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Um, not Not that I would be qualified to say. I mean, I I I think I vaguely understand the idea of like. Putting quantity to the idea of probability and things like that and making judgments based on data But it's not like I've ever actually used it for anything or gone through any kind of calculus course to, to learn it formally So I don't really know any anything beyond what its function should be um, But I mean it, it I think that it's pretty standard practice to look at something like a historical claim and then judge it based on probability and plausibility rather than saying just plainly yes or no, because we don't have access to that event the it's same true. way that we have access to things that are repeatable. And so you
1: have to judge them differently. You know what I mean? Right, right. It's kind of like a good tool from what I sound like, cause I've never heard of Bayes' Theorem uh, to be honest with you guys uh, until now, but it sounds like a good tool to use to answer that question. Well, why do we believe what we believe? Would that be accurate?
0: Or at least believe what we believe about some things. It's not like everything, you know, Um, it I think I think the way that it's applied and and forgive me if I'm mistaken, but I think the way that it's applied is more so to the idea of of whether or not something is more probable than not so that you can say, you know, with some level of confidence that you affirm it rather than saying I have 100 percent proof, like repeatable proof that this is because it's not an observable thing. We're not Mm -hmm. going back to. The first century and watching jesus come back to life to imprint himself onto a shroud it's like instead we're trying to uh discern from what's present what we can't actually access and so there has to be some way of judging whether or not that that's even a reasonable case or not and there has to be some falsifiability to a claim in order to find it reliable if you can't prove something false you also can't prove it true and so there has Mm. to be some measure by which you judge like this is more plausible, less plausible, more possible, less possible kind of thing. Is that, is, am I following Dale?
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, so yeah, you're exactly right, right? So it's it comes down to, look, you're comparing and contrasting hypotheses. So what's the probability that hypothesis is true given the evidence, you, al- you also have to look at that fundamental aspect that, you know, the probability that it's false kind of thing in light of right. various hypotheses. So, you
1: know,
2: uh, Famously, um, Tim McGrew and Lydia McGrew. Um, mm-hmm. Listeners, will is this on Pora's web website? Yeah. As well? yep. Okay. So, so some of the listeners then they they would know that I posted up uh, their article on the resurrection and they use a proper Bayesian approach to proving the the resurrection from the historical evidence and that sort of thing. Uh, Richard Swinburne's used it and that. One, one thing um, I should say in terms of my own use of Bayes' theorem, so just so I'm not uh, tricky in one, I, I don't uh, use the proper approach, so I don't um, use conditional probabilities and that sort of thing. I, I just kind of do a more straightforward mm-hmm. approach in terms of assessing, okay, what do I think the prob- subjective probability value for this bit of evidence is? Um, and then I plug that into Bayes. So I, I just use Bayes more of. I want to get that cumulative thing here. Here are the numbers. Uh, what does it equal out in the end kind of
1: thing? Right on, man. Right on. And just just to remind me real quick, what did you say that the percentage was for the Shroud of Torrin?
2: For the Shroud of Turin, it uh, came out be one point one five percent
1: Right on, man. Right on. Josh, is hmm. there any, anything you want to kind of bring up in regards to the Shroud of Torrin for this little pregame chat, chat while we're waiting on Teddy or...?
0: Uh, maybe just a shout out that my favorite coverage of this so far has hands down been um, Braxton Hunter and Jonathan Pritchett from ah. Trinity Radio uh, discussing um, a chapter from a book that was edited by uh, Mike Lycona, uh, and and it was it was a really awesome kind of you know quirky they're they're funny anyway but um, Braxton has a way of taking things that normally sound drab and kind of like dry and making them exciting yeah very listenable so. and pritchett has a good way of breaking up the monotony with you know um uh, a good jest or a punch here and there it's kind of it's very entertaining but also very informative so i think that uh um what i've from what i've seen so far of the things that i've been able to to you know rediscover from from the past trying to look into things like this and, and you know trying to learn more so that i'm prepared to ask questions that are worth asking. (laughs) That's right. Um, you know, so uh just kind of like going over what I had seen and and things that I wanted to know about. Um that was the that was the episode that I saw that pretty much really like kept my interest the entire time. And it's part one, part two kind of thing. And it it was really
1: good. It was really good. Yeah, I enjoyed listening to the Shroud Wars reboot uh, with Teddy and Hugh on uh, Skeptics and Seekers. Uh, that it's on Spotify, and if you just type in Shroud Wars reboot, it'll it'll pop right up. Uh, but Dale, if you uh, had a resource to share with our listeners about where to go to find more information on the Shroud of Torn, what's your favorite resource?
2: Yeah, well, so in the first place, yeah, I was I was gonna post up that show along with on my on my site, but uh, so believe it or not, I am the originator of the Shroud. Wars. Uh, that happened oh, okay. me. so uh, yeah I've, I've got several uh, Shroud Wars debates on my uh, my channel uh-huh. um, I, I on real Seeker my blog real seeker uh, com, or if, in YouTube if you just search real seekers and then you know search for like Shroud Wars um, so I, I originally did a couple Shroud Wars debates um, number one can we prove the shroud is medieval so that was kind of where the skeptic mm-hmm. had the burden of proof um, and then the second one I, I did was, can we prove that the Shroud's not medieval? And that's where I had the burden of proof to prove that it's it's not. Yeah, um, I, I also have an entire series of Shroud solo shows that, you know, Daniel Lowry in the audience, he's familiar with it um, and that sort of thing. And that's where I go into like a lot of detail laying out the case and the evidence for the Shroud um, in terms of the history and my own scientific case. So. I think I'm up to like part 14 now, I think. so.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, the first thing I type in on YouTube whenever I just type in Shroud Wars uh, is Shroud Wars 1 Barry Schwartz interview.
2: Gotcha. So so that's mine. Yeah. So that was uh, back when I was the host of Skeptics and Seekers. That was just kind of a straightforward interview where I had like an an atheist um, and myself kind of interview Barry Schwartz, who's one of the former Shroud experts. He was the
0: photographer, right? He was the
2: official photographer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: that was the one that they were reading a chapter that was written by him on the the one I was just mentioning with Braxton and Pritchett. Uh, they were reading that chapter from from uh, he. I believe he was the author of the chapter that they were going over uh, when mm-hmm. they were doing it. So that's really actually very cool that you've that you have spoken directly to that guy.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's a friend. Uh, person like I've talked to him a lot and stuff like that. I, I'm planning to have him back on uh, sometime in the summer if he if he's up for it and kind of thing. Uh,
1: cool. Oh, wow. right on. So yeah who was it? what was his name again uh barry schwartz he, barry schwartz. he runs
2: oh. a, you know yeah
1: okay so barry schwartz he was the guy you said josh that he was the uh the photographer yeah
0: he was the he was the oh, official okay. photographer for the original research team um i forget spurt or something S P R T right st yeah strp yeah that's what it was uh so um yeah, he he was the the original. Uh, he was on the original team. They did the. He was doing the uh, officiated photography. And I don't think he he's actually Jewish, right? He's not a Christian. He's
2: not a Christian. Yeah, he he was. Uh, oh. So he runs uh, shroud. dot com, which is the number one site. Um, you know, you want pro, you want shroud skeptic stuff. He he's got everything on that that website there. But yeah, he he was um, kind of an unbeliever. Um, he was definitely like skeptical towards the shroud, and it was. Basically through the science, and it took him about 17 years after Sturp in 1978. Uh, But through it was through the evidence from the shroud that he became a believer in God. Um, He's still Mm. not a Christian yet; he's Jewish. But um, you know, he's 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 very open to it, and he he finds the evidence very compelling, just on strict scientific
1: grounds. Really? So does he affirms the validity of the shroud then, or? Yep. He so he affirms the historical authenticity. He says that okay. thing covered Jesus,
2: uh, but he doesn't believe that the images are miraculous or, or that, or he, he's it. Oh.
1: Okay, because there are. So correct me if I'm wrong, but are there multiple theories on how the image actually got onto the shroud? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, we
2: we we don't know yet. Uh, like we, in terms of the scientific evidence, we can't prove. Uh, how it was created, we we can prove how it was not created, and, and that's in part what convinces Barry and stuff like that is, is interesting and part of my case, um, but there, you know, there are various extraordinary mechanisms of like the people who advocate that this is a, a supernatural event, a image formed at Jesus' resurrection, there are various proposals. Um, I myself take kind of the same approach as a guy named Mark Antionacci and Bob Rucker, I, I think some kind of particle radiation mm-hmm. was involved in informing the images and that.
1: Okay. Okay. So just a heads up, guys. So we're having a little bit of te- technical difficulties with Teddy. Um, she sent me a message, still trying to get it. I downloaded Chrome, as it said, but it's still saying not supporting StreamYard's technology. She said she's still trying and that she's downloaded Firefox and Chrome, and the link is not working for some reason. Um, I bet that's I'm new to me. Wrong. You're using Chrome?
2: Yeah, it's fine.
1: Okay. Uh, Let me message her back. Uh, Josh, do you have anything else that you would uh, like to bring to the table for this pregame chat? You're muted, bud.
2: I was gonna say he fell asleep, he's bored um, already. <laughs> what,
0: I was gonna ask uh, Dale specifically, if, if what what tradition are you like adhered to? Are you a Protestant? Are you a Catholic? Um, or what what denomination are you associated with if you are a Protestant?
2: Yeah, so I so I'm hardcore Protestant. I, I was a Baptist for most of my life. Okay. Um uh, that's changed recently. I'm Presbyterian. I go to a Presbyterian church now, but I don't I don't know the difference. Between the denominations up <laughs> in front, but yeah.
0: Okay. So I'm hardcore
2: Protestant, yeah.
0: Okay, fair enough. And are you are you of uh are you of the the uh, iconoclast type where you think that the second commandment violation of like making images and 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 using relics for spiritual practices and things is actually a no-no?
2: No. Um, like my old church, uh my old pastor definitely was. He, you know, you can't even do Christmas plays because you can't represent And stuff like that but for me it's it's about worshiping if you if you're worshiping the the image then that's where it becomes wrong but yeah like i wouldn't feel totally comfortable like in a catholic church with like statues around or like i don't know what they do there if they bend down or, or that sort of thing but like i um yeah so like to me it's the attitude of the heart if you're worshiping images of creatures or something that's where it's a sin that's where it's idolatry
0: well, do you, I, I guess it, then do you, do you make a distinction between what you mean by worshiping in your heart or venerating the thing that's the stand in for what's in front of you? Um, you know, the way that they would have a statue of a saint is, is an icon and it's supposed to be a uh, an additional help toward praying or meditating about a specific thing or overcoming a specific thing or asking for prayer from someone who's in the presence of God or something like that. Is All, all, all of those things are things that you hadn't really... Uh, done much investigation into or that you're like because i I am I'm, I'm in a position where I've been inve- investigating a lot of things because I you know like you was like hardcore Protestant right it's like I, I've come to a place where I realized that a lot of what I understood to be those practices was largely misunderstanding or elaborate straw men and so I'm kind of really interested on that end because of the shroud being like a a a lasting and still existing accessible relic of of the church for at least you know what 800 years Uh it's pretty it's pretty impressive uh and i i know the kind of thing that's associated with church tradition in the in the protestant mind but i'm just kind of curious as to where you stand on some of those things because for me that's part of what it is we're talking about—it's not just the authenticity of some historical event, because none of us are actually questioning the resurrection. Um, I'm just kind of wondering how that how that falls into your worldview. What it is that we're talking about, you know?
2: Yeah. So yeah. So so in terms of like myself, so I'm I'm not I'm, I'm much more open now to you know like things like ca- uh, Catholic miracles or healings and stuff like that. Where before I would just like you no know, assume it's got to be false. Mm. Kind of thing uh, so it, it has kind of opened my mind to not be so assumptive and that sort of thing um i, I guess it's part of my background I, I still have a bit of uncomfortableness though with things like veneration but i agree with what you're saying it, it's you need to have this proper understanding of what they're actually teaching um obviously right. they're not you know bowing down to a bunch of like pagan idols um so, right. so yeah
1: Hey, guys. Um, so Teddy is with us right now. She got it on. Welcome, Teddy. It is a pleasure. It is an honor to meet you. Um, well,
4: thank ha- you.
1: So we are in the pregame chat. We're live now. So let's go ahead and kick this intro off and let's just go ahead and dive into it, shall we? All right. All right. Yes. All right. I'll go ahead and mute everybody and then we'll get started. What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the CSG takeover of PORA. My name is Tyler Fowler. I'm the co-host of the Complete Sinners Guide podcast. And with me is my brother from another mother, the second co-host of the Complete Sinners Guide podcast, Mr. Joshua Davidson. Brother, how are you and how excited are you to talk about the Shroud of Torn tonight?
0: Um, i'm i'm doing much better than yesterday i had a previous back injury that reared its head but uh, i was able to rest for most of the day yesterday and uh thank thank the lord i got some decent sleep last night because of a uh, a muscle relaxer i don't ever take medications and so it really sure. like it it smacked me like a train man i can
4: still <laughs> feel it
0: but uh, i'm i'm definitely a lot better this morning and i'm just I'm I'm thankful and I'm i I'm I am excited to talk about something that honestly for me has not been an emphasis uh, in any of my studies and so this is new this is kind of an untrodden path for me this morning uh, in a lot of ways and uh, God seems to supply us with the opportunity to talk to people who really know what they're talking about more often than not right. and I'm I'm very excited and uh, and, and thankful for that um, uh, it's nice to meet you Teddy I've never actually gotten to have a conversation with you or anything like that before so um i'm just excited to meet you and dale and 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 have have an opportunity to be a voice in the in the room you know this is uh it's cool i i i'll admit that i'm not qualified to have much of an opinion yet um but i definitely have some inquiries so
1: um
0: i'm excited to 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 be able to do that
5: well it's great to meet you too
1: I'm really in the same boat as josh i i have no i'm not qualified at all so i'll be coming with a, uh, <laughs> questions on this but i do really appreciate uh the opportunity david has given josh and i to sit down with you and dell to talk about this but you are the expert you are the bear uh teddy poppus <laughs> it is an honor to meet you ma'am and to uh, you uh, not a honey badger okay <laughs> <laughs> but Yeah, go ahead and take a few minutes to uh, introduce yourself. And for those who don't know you, um, I just want to ask up front, what is the story that initially got you so interested about the Shroud to dedicate so much time to divulging its secrets?
5: Well, I was around the age of 15, and it was around Easter time. And uh, initially, I saw something on television. It was some, I don't know, either on the news or just something where they were just mentioning the shroud of turin and so that stuck in my mind and then i think it was maybe the next day or so i was in the grocery store with my mother and we were in the checkout lane and i see a a magazine cover that had the shroud on it okay. and and i was like oh second time and so i was looking at it and i was just mesmerized by the image and it was saying that it was the burial cloth of christ Mm -hmm. uh or at least the purported burial cloth of christ and so i got very curious and i asked my mom if we could go get a book on it and so i read um a book by dr ken stevenson and dr gary habermas called Verdict on the Shroud. And I have just been endlessly fascinated with, the, with this whole burial cloth um, for all of these years. But it's only been, I had done some intermittent research over the years, but um, it's only been in the past maybe year, year and a half that I've gotten really intense
4: mm-hmm. with
5: my my research. But it it is, extremely fascinating. And as a friend of mine, Joe Marino has, ta- has said, he's, he's like, I can't imagine why everyone isn't just completely fascinated by it. Because sure. once you really know what it is, and when you start to look into it, and you see the, the, um, the real solid scientific evidence behind it, I mean, what could be more interesting than evidence of the supernatural realm?
1: Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm excited to dig into some of that, the history, the science behind the Shroud. Uh, But first we have Mr. Dell Glover, last but not least, joining us. Brother, how are you and how excited are you to dive into the Shroud of Turin tonight?
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm doing good.
1: Thanks. Thanks so much for for having me. Obviously,
2: I've I've been uh, getting to know you guys for the last little bit, a couple minutes here. But uh, yeah, so in terms of speaking about the Shroud, this is a talk that I think is very important. It was one of the one of the four factors that led me to come to faith in Christ. So I think it's very important to to share that evidence and it might be of help to people. So, yeah, I'm excited
1: now, just to clarify for everybody, you and Teddy have worked together um, doing different things on the Shroud of Torn. Can you go into a little bit of that uh, for us though?
2: Ah, uh, sure. So um, you, we were kind of speaking about um, Teddy's debate with Hugh and the Shroud Wars yeah. thing. So this is where I met when I was the Christian host of Skeptics and Seeker co-host of, of Skeptics and Seekers. I, Initiated the, this thing, what I called Shroud Wars. And um, I did some debates and some solo shows. And Teddy kind of heard my debate with the, the skeptic Alan there. And she loved it and said, Oh, this is great. Um, so she kind of became a loyal follower um, on our skeptics and seekers. And obviously, we, I learned about uh, her story and how she came into contact with the Shroud and that sort of stuff. And, We've been kind of working together on that. Um, although Teddy has definitely surpassed me now. She's an actual expert, kinda of working <laughs> on the, the research and stuff with the with the, with people. So yeah.
5: You know what, to, Dale. Don't sell yourself <laughs> <too>.
0: <laughs> I right tried. On. So can I ask forgive my ignorance, can I ask, have either of you actually been in the tangible presence of this thing and like been involved in seeing and or you know, interacting with the, the object itself?
5: i have not um and i can't wait till it goes on exhibit the next time because come hell or high water i'm gonna be there
1: That is is going <laughs> yeah,
4: i
5: I'm don't going. blame
0: you i mean going it is well. pretty cool and I'm it's here. your life wow. to work you do want to be in on you know you don't you want to be in on on because that's that's for me you know I, i'm a musician so if i had the opportunity to meet my favorite musicians mm-hmm. and they were around like you said hell or high water bro i'm <laughs> you know, I'm I'm going to be try to try to be in on that for sure.
5: Because the thing is, is that you can't just go see the shroud. It's for a long for the longest time, it was rarely on exhibit, and uh, the past couple of decades, it's been on exhibit more. There is talk, Now, I don't know if the whole pandemic might mess things up, but there has been talk that um, I think in maybe 2025, I think. Somebody had told me that Pope John Paul, there was some sort of Pope John Paul II had wanted it displayed on a certain important anniversary, which I'm not sure what that anniversary was for. But so I would assume that they might want to honor that if, you know, if it can be done, uh, given the whole pandemic situation. Right on. Maybe, you know, maybe in about three years.
1: Right on, right on. So let's jump into this, shall we? So we see in church history the different images that pop up from time to time. For example, the image of Odessa, of Veronica's Veil, the Montepello image, right? What exactly, first of all, for those who don't know, for those who haven't heard of it, what exactly is the Shroud of Turin and what's the story behind it? And also one more, is there any connection between the Shroud of Turin and uh, the image of Odessa or Veronica's Veil or anything like that?
5: I, um, that's one of the things that I have been researching and I am convinced that the Shroud of Turin is also the image of Edessa. There's actually very compelling evidence when the image of Edessa was brought to Constantinople in 944 AD, Uh, that same day, uh, there was a, a speech given called the narratio and, um, and also the emperor and his uh, sons and son-in-law saw the, the the cloth and they speak of seeing the, um, the whole image, the whole body. And they speak, they speak of seeing the eyes. Now there's a question and that's something that I've actually been, uh, working on, uh, there are some conflicting definitions. It it talks about the eyes and ears, but I have found actually on through internet, through the internet, looking at Greek translations, because I, I, I'm of Greek heritage and I speak Greek. Now, modern Greek is not the same as Koine Greek, but when I read Koine Greek, I can understand, I'd say over 50% of it. Sure. So there, there's a, a still a good link. Yeah. Well, so I was looking at where it said the eyes and ears and looking at the Greek. Um and for for ears, for ota, which is the word for ears, I kept having this nagging suspicion that it could mean everything. So if so if Emperor if the soon to be Emperor Constantine for genitus, saw the eyes and everything well that's indicating everything on the clock so um i i asked my mom who's in native greek and uh she's like no no you're confusing it with some other word and i said no but i just have this nagging suspicion in the back of my head that it can mean you know maybe it's some archaic term that can mean everything and so i get on um on Google, and I start looking at different translations. And I kept seeing when I just put in the word OTA where it just said ears. Now, I had also seen in an article in a, a Shroud paper by um, Professor Dan Scavone, who's a Shroud expert. Yeah. And he had, in the text of the paper, he had written OTA spelled with, it was. Uh, an omega i believe okay but in a footnote where he also referenced the greek text it was spelled with an omicron so at first i was thinking oh this is just a typographical error but then i was like well maybe it's not right so, um as a lawyer you know i'm always hunting down loose you know trying to tie up loose strings and i'm chasing going down rabbit trails because that's a lot of times where you find the great stuff right so um so i was wondering if you know with the spelling because in in the greek alphabet you have sorry it's my dog you have two different um letters for o omicron and omega so i was wondering if the meaning could possibly change if it was an omicron well I kept, when I was looking online, the translations were not showing anything for Omicron. But for Ota, it's with an Omega, mm. it was showing ears. But then I came across this thing where you can do translations where you can type in whole sentences. So I type in the whole sentence in Greek with an Omicron, and lo and behold, it said, the eyes and everything. everything. I was like, holy mackerel. Wow. <laughs> like, and I mean, I was just stunned. So I was like, is this a fluke? You know, I'm a lawyer, I'm skeptical. about
1: that.
5: <laughs> Um, so I find another type of online translator <laughs> thing where I could put in the whole sentence. And then I got. And then I got the definition of eyes and all. Hold on, let me see if I can get quiet. Yeah. All right. Uh, How do I pause? i will
2: just press mute, I think.
5: Okay.
1: Here I can mute you. All we right, well, well uh, yeah, no.
2: guessing her dog. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. I think the first thing to start with, you you asked, what is the shroud? So let let's start with that first. Sure. So basically, it's it's a purported burial cloth of, of Jesus Christ. It has images on it that correspond to the treatment that Jesus got in the Gospels. Uh, you know, it's a, a naked uh, guy. It looks, he's got w- various wounds and bloodstains on him. It looks like he's been scourged. And crucified. He's got wounds in his wrists and on his on his uh, ankle, feet. Um, So yeah, that's what it is. It's basically purported to be Jesus's burial shroud. And what's what's interesting is that when it comes to the images in 1978, and we'll get into this in more detail, it it was kind of studied, and they have these very unique set of physical and chemical properties or attributes that make the images remarkable. Um, Mm -hmm. So most Christians like it, like myself and Teddy, because, oh my goodness, here's actual empirical evidence suggesting that a a miracle of God has taken place uh, that authenticates Christianity. So that's kind of what the Shroud is. Um, In terms of just addressing the history in a nutshell, so I kind of like Teddy. uh, So here's my unique answer. In in terms of the history thing, I'm kind of a, a weirdo in that I don't actually care about linking the shroud to the historical Jesus if even if it's a medieval thing uh, I don't really care it's as long as we can still prove that the images are probably miraculous then that's good enough God can do a miracle in the medieval times today or whenever um, so that's kind of I'm kind of unique on that front um, but that said I do believe that the shroud did historically go back to Jesus and I think the evidence, is is good on a balanced probabilities um so like teddy i think i would kind of link it with the image of odessa um i know there's another uh, thesis like the image of christ in Sicilia, by the shroud historian jack Markwort, which is uh, might be a, a another th- historical hypothesis again these are all speculative in terms of what the shroud is and that sort of thing but I think that we do have good evidence suggesting the Shroud dates prior to the medieval time. So I, I would link uh, the Shroud of Turin with something called the Sudarium of Oviedo, for example. And this is the purported head cloth um, that covered Jesus. It has bloodstains on it. And forensically, um, some of the bloodstains seem to correspond to some of the bloodstains and body fluids seen on the Shroud of Turin. And in this way, we can link the two. And we know for a fact that the, sh- the Sudarium has a much older provenance uh, than, you know, the medieval times or something. So in a nutshell, that's kind of my, my take, uh, is that I believe that we can um, argue that the Shroud probably covered Jesus. Uh, but even if we can't, even if it's medieval, who cares? We can still prove it's a miracle.
1: Right on, right on. And look at that. The what? host with the most. Heretic himself. The heretic himself. <laughs> Welcome from back from the DMV, brother. David, you stuck? Huh. I Uh-oh. think David. <laughs> I'm sorry, there. I didn't mean to say you were a heretic. I didn't mean. To say that. <laughs> Whenever you said he was a heretic, his brain just it's exploded. It it uh, like Teddy, uh, uh, yeah, it does seem like that. Uh, Teddy, um, did you want to finish your thought? Oh yes.
5: Um, so, uh, so I then checked another online translator where I can put in a whole sentence or paragraph, whatever. But I typed in the sentence, and this time it said for that tail end, important part of that sentence, it said the eyes and everything. And so I'm like, so the O, for some reason, when I would type it with an an omega, it would say ears, but I'm like, why is it saying everything or all, meaning the same thing? With that, now the importance of that is because on the very second day of the image of Edessa's being in Constantinople, uh, Gregory Referendarius gave his famous sermon and he spoke about the image of Edessa and he had seen it. So we have a firsthand account from his sermon. No, this is a copy of his sermon, not the original. Uh, Because, you know, these manuscripts (laughs) don't survive that long, so it's copies of copies. But um, in it, he describes the side wound, seeing the blood in the side wound. Now, what's relevant about that? Why is that huge? Because there is a big debate as to whether the image of Edessa, which is also sometimes known as the Mandelion, Whether that is just like a square piece of cloth that is just the face of Christ or whether it's the whole body. Now, the reason what it is, is it's confusion because we and we can see through fold marks on the shroud. Because remember, it's like a 14 foot long by three or something inches foot long cloth. It was folded now, and we can see the fold marks on the shroud yep. and these fold marks correlate with it being to where you can fold it in a way to where you see the face right in the middle. And then that would put be put in a reliquary. And so when they roll. held up this reliquary with the folded cloth on the inside, what do people see? They see a square piece of cloth with the face on it. And so then the tradition came about this thing was just the square, but no, they're not seeing everything behind it. But again, we have the second day after the image of Edessa, where Gregory Referendarius, you can't see a side wound in a cloth that's just the face. And there, there's a ton of evidence. Um, and it, it's an area that's not really looked into uh, very much, but uh, so that's one of the reasons why I, I've, I've been fascinated, because as criminal yeah. defense, the provenance, the chain of evidence is important. But just like Dale said, it's not the end all be all, because let's take with a criminal case, let's say a murder happened and then um The police, a year later, find the the gun that was used to murder somebody uh, in a river. Well, you know what? You don't have to have, in order to convict somebody, uh, a chain of evidence saying, okay, from the murder, from the time of the murder that the gun was used... Uh, every single little detail that the murderer did with the gun to show how exactly it got into the river. If you can show that what's in the river by whatever evidence is the thing that caused the death of the person, You know that's all you really need. So even though there are some gaps in the history of the shroud, I say so what. And so long as we can see that what is described, uh, that we know in the gospels, we've we've got this these cloths, and we we see with the shroud and the sudarium, and we see consistency. And we keep hearing about this image because see that's the thing. There's this talk all. through history of this cloth that is not made by human hands. Mm -hmm. And so then you say, well, you know, that sounds a bit suspect, Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know what? To this day, even with all of the modern technology, they cannot replicate all of these very curious features about the shroud.
1: That is, that is awesome because it I, is. in doing the research on you know on this topic with, with the Odessa you know uh, mm-hmm. cloth, with it being just the face right that that we see a, a lot, it's interesting that you bring up that there's actual fold marks that would just display mm-hmm. the face and that would be a, I think an excellent rebuttal that- for that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I was, I was just, if I can just jump in. One thing about, so Dr. John Jackson has proven scientifically these uh, these fold marks. And one thing that's interesting about the fold marks is it. this is also suggestive perhaps of the dates because um, there was a study when I just, uh, back in uh, 2002, um, a couple of Shroud researchers, Aldo uh, garishi and um, Michelle Salcido, sorry, I'm horrible with names, but they actually presented a paper whereby they can tell there's there's water stains on the shroud. Mm-hmm. And they can tell that, okay, based on these water stains, it would have had to have been folded into a certain configuration at one point uh, where it could have precisely fit into an ancient jar, a jar that wouldn't have been around in medieval periods. So, you know, that's perhaps suggestive of an earlier
0: provenance based on these fold patterns.
1: Wow. Josh, you got anything you want to ask or add?
0: Um, I mean... It's it's kind of got my wheels turning in terms of, um, you know, like you said, the idea of linking evidence to the original event rather than trying to find every link between now and the event, finding those things that that are relevant enough to say, yeah, yeah, it's the gun. This was the gun that killed them. We have the gun. We have the event. We have the link of the, the the gun to the person who used it. This yeah. is sufficient. I don't need every footstep that he made in order to get it in the river. I don't need the 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 current of the river and and why the gun has this rust mark or that rust mark. Those things are just additives to explain, but they're not actually what traces back from here to there. Um, sure. And so I'm kind of at, you know pun not intended what's the smoking gun for you on the the shroud itself which is it a particular style of marking is it the fact that you can verify this man was scourged and crucified uh was it the is it is it kind of an accumulation of several things i cuz um it, it you sound very convinced um and you're you're explaining it in a way that's very lawyer-esque right uh and so i'm kind of for you what is that smoking gun what is the thing what is it that you pulled out of the river that you're like ah
5: it is, um, well, in, in law, a lot of times people think that the best evidence is direct evidence or eyewitness testimony, and actually that's not true. Eyewitness testimony can be replete with errors. We see rape victims that you know ended up mis- horribly misidentifying somebody, even though they were so close to them, and DNA evidence proves that they had to be wrong, and yet they are so certain they're right. Um, sometimes the strongest cases can be made circumstantially, where it and and as we describe what circumstantial evidence is in order to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt, it is where you draw all of this different evidence, but it has to weave a web that is so tight where there's no reasonable doubt. So, a little bit here, a little bit there. So with the shroud, I don't know that it, it, to me, it is just like we say in the law, it's the body of evidence. It's putting everything together. And one of the things, um, the most wonderful piece of advice that I'd ever uh, heard said concerning the shroud, uh, and it was Dr. Alan Adler, who was the, the blood expert, um, he was part of the Sturt team, Um, he said, you know, a lot of times, and he was specifically talking about blood, but actually what he said is perfectly applicable to the shroud in general. You cannot with every, okay, so we've got a mountain of evidence uh, supporting the shroud's authenticity. You cannot, no, I mean, nothing will be 100%. That's just not how anything in the world works. The only thing that we can know 100% is like what Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, Right.
4: No, right. I mean,
5: there's no 100% and, and people are chasing a dream if they think you can get that. So, we're, you know, we're looking at probabilities and then compelling probabilities. So, right. um so the thing is, is that when you see a mountain of evidence, sure, you're always going to be able to poke some sort of little hole in anything. So it doesn't count when you have a mountain of evidence and you poke a little hole here and a little hole there and a little hole there. Right. Yet that little hole really doesn't amount to anything. And you say, oh, well, you've got nothing. No, because one has to account for the evidence that actually exists as a whole pointing to authenticity you have to explain away how one thing can all point to something being true because i can assure you that if you wanted to try to to um make a case that i'm wonder woman um you're not (laughs) going to be able to do it i mean where's your evidence you know (laughs)
0: Uh, let's make a part two of we'll the, do the that. hair. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
5: um. So I might, I might say, well, you know, I got brown hair like Linda Carter and, and you're going to say, but you don't have this and, but you're going to poke a lot of holes in that, but you're going to say, well, you don't have the special bracelet <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or whatever. But so, you know, anybody that thinks that you can just come up with a mountain of evidence that's compelling to prove and it's backed up with science and history to prove a point. Then let's see you do it, Yeah. because, you know, there's this thing called the ring of truth. And so people, when they see a mountain of evidence and they and they try to do these little ad hoc attacks like, oh, well, here's a little problem here there's a little problem there. No, you've got to explain away all of these things pointing in one direction in order. And if you want to try to disprove something.
1: Right. Right. And and more so than none, the, right. the people that are poke, poking those little holes in there already are coming with the presupposition of a skeptic anyway. Yeah.
5: And, 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 so. and, you know, and it's okay to be skeptical. And I Um, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm a skeptic myself. You know, when I hear things, um, that's why I wanted to read a book on the shroud, even at age 15, I wasn't just going to accept it whole cloth. (laughs) Um, I I wanted to learn about it, but when you hear, and, and these aren't just, you know, nobodies who were working on this, we had, um, there were scientists, chemists from Los Alamos mm-hmm. National Laboratory, where they make the nuclear bombs for the government. I mean,
4: yeah.
5: and Losandia or Sandia Laboratories. I mean, we're talking top-notch people, and a blood expert that was a uh, a professor, uh, Dr. Alan Adler. I mean, you know, we're not talking about uh, Joe Blow next door yeah. that was trying to do an experiment and is making unsubstantiated claims. So uh, it, it's it's very compelling, but it's not just one thing. You have to have that whole body of evidence, because you can prove all of the chemistry and the science, but if you don't have identity, then what do you have? Then it, it could be just some curious phenomena of some crucifixion victim. Right. How do you link it to Christ that it can be linked to? Christ, right? So, and, um, identity is a
1: big deal. Amen, amen. And and let we'll get into uh, the science and how exactly the shroud links to Christ. I do want to bring up because you mentioned the gospels and their use of Sindone, uh with the uh, the sheet. I want to touch on John and and listening to the debate that you had with Hugh on uh, seekers and skeptics. He had he had mentioned this, or, or one of them mentioned it. Um, in the beginning, but it really didn't get touched on uh, since that wasn't the topic of the debate. But I do want to read for our listeners John 19 and John 20 and then get your guys' thoughts on on this. So uh, John 19, 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, Came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about seventy five pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial uh, custom of the Jews. And then in John twenty verses six through seven, then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths, plural. Lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in pla- in, in a place by itself. And the question I have is, how can the shroud of Torn be what John is describing in chapters nineteen and twenty of his gospel, given that the shroud is a single unit?
5: Well, with the shroud, you got to remember we've got the the long strip of linen, that's okay. like three by fourteen in terms of size. But you also have, um, there's evidence, and it's of course totally common. um, Even my mom, uh, who who was born in Greece, she's even seen, because they don't have a whole lot of space to bury people. So after a year, once the body has um, been reduced to a skeleton, they take the the bones out and put it in a a bone box um, where it takes up less space. But she's even seen, even in modern Greece, where they use these chin straps to, or, or to hold the jaw shut so that the mouth isn't gaping open. So it, and it is, it was a custom and I'm sure probably still is among um, certain, probably Orthodox Jews where they, they put the chin band. There's evidence in the images of the shroud. We, Cause we don't see ears right. on the shroud. Right. And, 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 um, and that was actually one of the interesting things with the Ota issue that first drew my attention. I was like, how could have you seen ears? Because you don't see ears on the shirt. So that's kind of what spiraled my curiosity and, and I then investigated it. But
4: sure.
5: um, so so in John, we have and and let me say something else too. We're dealing with The English translations to really get down to business, you've got to go to the original Greek. Now, in John, what in John 19, what is it, 40, Mm -hmm. the original Greek, the word that they use, because in in some translations, some English translations, they say that he took Jesus's body and wrapped it. With aromatic spices. Mills, some people don't use wrap. Some people use tide. And my knowledge of Greek was saying wait a minute, the word evisan is never tied. It's the other word that the Synoptic Gospels use, and delixan. And we use that word even now, like if you're wrapping a Christmas present, you're going, you know, not delixis, uh, you know, the, the present. So, You've got a situation to where textual criticism is extremely important. Going back to the original Greek, because some of these um, translations in different Bibles can get very willy-nilly. So, so first of all, in John, it's where some say wrapped. Uh, the Greek word is tied, tied or bound. Right. But then they use the word othonia. Now. There was the issue of whether that is a singular word or plural, and um, it seems from what I am seeing that that word is, is um, well, I, it's still not quite resolved whether it's singular or plural. Okay, I was thinking that it was singular, uh, I'm trying to remember if Hugh we were trying to discuss this recently. Okay. And, um, but I think it's going to boil down to a textual critic getting in and weighing in. And I actually contacted one who uh, works at a seminary. Right. And he's, he's, he's a younger fellow. He's not one of the established ones. Sure. Asking for his help. And he, you didn't have the time of day for it. So.
1: Right. It, it's interesting that you bring that up because um I in the uh translation, the SBL translation of the Greek New Testament, they actually translate it as a plural Hothani Ois. And so I thought that was interesting. But yeah, I'll dive into more uh, research on that, whether it is actually supposed to be translated as a plural or a singular. That's interesting.
3: Teddy, who did you reach out to? Uh Peter Gurry. He
5: wrote, you know, wrote books And um he, he was saying that his schedule didn't allow for him to yeah um... i like you're a textual critic you, you know <laughs> I you know, i asked a number of questions but given his field it, it, i wouldn't think it would have required that much effort but you know I,
3: why don't you give me uh, exactly what I, you want to ask them and i'll uh pass it on to my friend that's a text critic
5: okay i will i will okay. because, because um, I, you know, awesome. I think, but, e- but I can argue it <laughs> either way. So let's just even say if they, if you say, afto well, in order to bind or to tie the big cloth, you need the mm-hmm. smaller cloth. So then that creates a, a plural. So I don't I don't think that either way that's problematic. But then when you get to in in John twenty, it talks about in Greek, kimena ta othonia. Now some people say laying down Mm -hmm. that the that the cloth was laying down. Now I started getting curious about that because for example, like if you lay down to go to sleep. You're, the word is is connected to that nakimi feast to to go and recline to sleep and it's like well when you die you're you know being put to rest you're laying down so then I started wondering if kimenata did he vlepi he sees the the cloths lying down or is it and no, there have been other translations that use burial cloth here instead of cloths lying down. And I think to me, that really can make sense because he's seeing um, it because it's 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 describing the cloth that it's, you know, for the burial. And then. Oh, sorry. Oh, my daughter um excuse me, one second.
4: Um,
5: All right. Um,
2: Oh, she's still.
3: Pick it. Okay. Pick back up, Dale. Yeah. Dale pick it back up from here for a second.
2: <laughs> you want to pick? Okay. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. So. So obviously, yeah. I saw Teddy's uh post on the SSG uh kind of thing. Um. One thing. Um. So there are there's this issue of multiple claws, and I guess to kind of simplify it, uh, Teddy, you're probably aware of Dr. John Jackson finding that strip on mm-hmm. the cloth. It's been ripped. It was a stripped, and they say it was used to bind. The body so this was one of the four minimal costs that would have been used uh and then it was put back sewn back onto the shroud itself so if i'm able to share my screen i can show like a video image of it for like a couple minutes or something i don't i don't know if that'll be helpful but um yeah let me see if uh, i share
3: screen should just say share yeah it, it's pretty easy mm-hmm. uh
2: Okay, so you, you have to just share everything, I guess.
3: Yeah, and then you can upload to the specific screen there. I'll add it to the stream. Yep, that, there you that, go. That, uh... Yeah, you and got it. it yep.
2: Okay, so yeah, we'll just play it for like a couple minutes. You can see how it... It's the
6: gospel of John? He mentions the face cloth, but he also mentions burial cloths in the plural. That must include the shroud that wrapped the corpse... But the plural indicates that there was yet another cloth, and that has puzzled New Testament scholars. Well, he believes he has identified the other cloth in the shroud itself, in a strip of cloth sewn along one side.
4: This
6: is a Transmitted image, it's a uh, transmitted light into absorption. Image. Jackson owns this backlit image of the shroud taken in 1978, and it shows clearly that the bands of discoloration from the weaving go right through the seam from the main cloth to the strip. Oh, wow! It was part of the original cloth, then torn off, and then re sewn back on again. Could this side strip be the
1: missing cloth on you in John? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Dale, do you have any follow up on that or?
5: Yeah. So I guess I guess you guys
2: get get uh can you guys still hear me or yeah. yeah. Oh, OK. Uh, yeah. So hopefully you guys saw that. Was that did, was that helpful like that? I think that's uh, excellent evidence that kind of addresses this
0: issue that you guys are raising.
1: No, absolutely. I think it's yeah, that ad- addressed my concerns. Josh, um, did you have anything that you wanted to add?
0: I mean, I had never seen the detail of the fact that there was a strip sewn along the entire side of the thing.
1: Right. Um,
0: I think that's probably um, for me, that would be something along the lines of a, a smoking gun. Right. Like I I. I think that the idea that there was multiple pieces of cloth recorded in the gospel and yet we don't have multiple pieces of cloth in front of us, it's like, well, technically that's because they've been mended. Um, I think that's pretty compelling. Um, yeah. I had never seen that before uh, or noticed it necessarily, um, but I think that that's actually something that's really worth knowing as an addition um, to what it is you guys are describing and saying, that okay, well. You know, there's a biblical, uh, I don't know about objection, but maybe a question about multiple versus singular. And it's like, like you said, if there's a large cloth and it needs to be wrapped and it's wrapped tightly and then you have the the necessity of the jaw not falling, the mandible not falling from the skull. It's like, how do you keep that? It's like a secondary wrap around the head.
4: And,
5: and likely around the, neck. the hands too being bound.
0: Right, 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 exactly. And, 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 and the way that all of the preparation, that, that there was actually part of the video where there was the, the folding preparation uh, thing going on. I thought that was also really uh, interesting to watch. Um, yeah. But but as as far as I can see, it seems pretty compelling to say it used to be two pieces. That Okay, one piece, a piece cut off, made two pieces at least, and then re-sewn on to make a mended one piece really kind of encapsulates the objection and the inquiry all into one thing and say, yeah, this accounts for that. So I think that that was really useful. You know, I'm
1: wondering also, too, would the, because John gives, you know, he says the face cloth, which was lying by itself, right? I'm wondering if that strip, because you said, uh, you had mentioned, Teddy, that, you know, it goes around the jawline. Could that long strip be that uh, thing that tied, you know, Jesus's jaw?
5: I think that could, I think that was, Possibly with it. But if you go back to John, it, it talks about how, remember, John first goes in and, and the word is that parakipses, uh, which means kind of like to duck in to the tomb, to peek in. So he wouldn't have had the best look at everything he just probably saw quickly what was most obvious which was the biggest which is sure. the shroud but then when peter peter goes all the way into the tomb and it's peter that sees both the othonia kimena which can either be translated as the cloths lying there or the burial cloths, either way it works. And separately, the Sudarian. Now, a Sudarian, it means sweat cloth. Now, um, and that would be distinguishable, I think, from just a strip. I would Mm -hmm. think of a sweat cloth as being more like a bandana. And, but that's precisely, even today, let's say if somebody dies, you know, like on a, motorcycle on the street what's the first thing that people will usually do they'll cover the face Keep right and so um that's what the sudarium that all the evidence points to the sudarium of Oviedo and Oviedo Spain because there are some very interesting correspondences between the way the bloodstains are on that cloth, no, there's no image on that cloth, but the way the bloodstains are on that cloth, there's a a striking correspondence, how it fits in with the bloodstains on, that we see on the face uh, of the the man's image on the shroud. And so I believe that, and, and most shroud scholars believe that when Joseph of Arimathea brought Christ down from the cross, they put this face cloth on him. But now, as Jews would do, the blood is sacred. So then that blood has to be buried with the body to keep the blood together, the life's blood. So I'm certain that they would have kept that that cloth and buried it with them. And I'm I, I'm totally confident beyond a reasonable doubt that that's precisely what is referred to as the, um, as the Sudarium that is separate. And it would make sense that they would have, you know, you'd have the cloth in one place where Jesus is buried in, but then they, they and it says rolled, that it was rolled. Um, and they tucked away the face cloth and put it in a, in the spot there but because I think John just peeked in sure and see everything sure so I don't find so some people um, try to see John as being very different no and I'm, now, something else that a lot of people don't notice and that is that in Luke in uh, in Luke 24 12 Again, it talks about, see, everybody thinks that, or most people, that it's only John that mentions Othonia, the word Othonia in the Greek. Luke mentions it too. But it's not in the spot where John says. But when Luke mentions it, it's, um, he, he says oth- that, uh, that John you know, peeked in and he saw the Othonia kimena which is it barrel cloth or just the Othonia that are laying down, but, but he uses it too. So it's not like John is just some outlier. And, and John may have just been a little bit different in the description in that um, earlier when he talks about them wrapping the body, he may have just been more descriptive and added more details that it strips, meaning sure. to account for the strips that are binding the larger cloth.
1: Sure absolutely it makes sense it absolutely makes sense del did you have any follow-up
2: uh yeah so i I just wanted to like clarify something that so like like, teddy was mentioning the sudarium. so there there's not just two cloths there there's the shroud the the strip uh there could be the chin strap that was separate and there's also that sudarium. so there's at least three or four uh gary habermas thinks that there's four kind of thing the chin strap is separate from the, (laughs) the other strap kind of thing so okay just wanted to clarify that for
1: for people absolutely absolutely all right josh um before we get into the science i know dale had um you wanted to talk about the methodology of the science behind the shroud um did you have anything before we transition or david
0: um i was gonna i was gonna just for clarity ask you said that the uh the the piece that was referenced specifically as a facial cloth is something that you think was used temporarily in the transport of the body and was buried with the body but not part of the wrapping burial of the body am i still following okay oh
2: you're sorry, you're, you're, muted. you're muted teddy,
0: teddy you're muted <laughs> <laughs> there you you're go sorry.
2: Is that for uh,
5: Dale or for me? I didn't. I didn't uh, I, well,
0: it, it was. I guess it was for you because you had mentioned specifically that this was a separate piece, yes. and that you had you you had, had had considered it to be something that was probably used uh, ceremonially as the covering of the face from when they took him down from the cross and transported his body from that location into the actual gravesite, and then from there they would wrap the body in a more formal cloth, and that other cloth would then be removed but set off to the side and buried with him because as in Deuteronomy, the life is in the blood and so speak mm-hmm. and so forth. So having, having the blood be in the burial place makes sense to me, but I was, I was confused as to whether, cause you said there wasn't a face imprint on it, but that there was blood right. stains that, that corresponded. So it's like, mm-hmm. you're saying that that was used temporarily to cover his Correct. face for transport, but not used permanently for the burial, right? In That's why it the, would be the, present, but also separate.
5: Correct. And the way that we can have complete confidence that he was not buried with that cloth is because it doesn't have the image on it. Because ah. if that if the Sudarium was over Jesus's face during um, as he was being wrapped up in the larger shroud, then the the facial image would only be. Well, I guess one could argue that it, the radiation or whatever energy could have seeped through right. the sudarium into the the larger cloth. Hold on, one minute, one minute. Sorry about my dog. One minute.
2: It's okay. Well, well while she's doing that, if you yeah. want, I can show like a clip again from that BBC thing, so you can kind of see what we're talking about in terms of the bloodstains. Do, do you guys, you guys are the host. Would, would you want to see that? Yeah, please I, I do. do. Interested? Very share
0: again yeah. um and just out of curiosity because i know i asked you dale but um uh teddy what what what's your uh what's your uh background as far as uh what what church you're associated with are you a protestant as well
5: i no, i am greek orthodox uh that's ah. what i grew up josh into. <laughs> there you go. Uh, i'm sorry i didn't i couldn't hear
0: uh no i was saying i i was saying ah because uh, i was The reason I was asking is because recently I've been investigating the Eastern Church a lot more and Uh uh, uh, I've come to be really interested in the idea of relics and icons and so forth. And was going to later on ask about the implications spiritually of finding something like this intact and knowing that not only historically or tangibly having some sort of evidence of the miraculous, but also um, finding in it what, what implication it has for our spiritual practices. Uh, in knowing that God would leave something like this behind and what's its significance. So just kind of maybe roll that around in the back of your head for later. <laughs> I would
5: say though that um, even though I grew up Greek Orthodox, I have, I, growing up, I went to, uh, I was off and on sometimes in private schools, church schools. So I've I've also had exposure to Lutheran uh, as a child, uh, you know, going to chapel and Bible class in its school, as well as Baptist. And um, I'm not necessarily wedded. That to explains to, it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not necessarily wedded <laughs> to the idea of everything that the Orthodox Church has to say is correct. For example, I don't no. believe in infant baptism. I don't, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily wrong or horrible to do it but i i don't think that's the purpose of it so i mean i'm an independent thinker and you know there are things with the protestant doctrines and yeah so i'm just kind of like i just take it as i see it and think about it and uh and i think that's the the best way to to approach these issues not just because i'm born into this church i have to toe the line
1: so right Right. Delphi, you want to go ahead and play your video now?
2: Okay, cool. Yeah, I just want to give you guys kind of a visual image of what we're talking about with the Sudarian, this headcloth. Yeah. Mark yeah. <laughs> an expert
6: on the sudarium of Oviedo in Spain. His evidence could push the date of the Turin Shroud back another 700 years to the 5th century. This is an identical copy of the sudarium. Its purpose was to trap blood escaping from the corpse. It was taken away for burial. Guskin believes he's identified significant evidence linking the Sudarium to the Shroud of Turin. Guskin already knew that the Shroud has real blood. It belongs to the rare group AB. There are also traces of blood shed in life and blood shed in death. And finally, there are the unmistakable traces of blood from a crown of thorns on the front of the head and the back. Duskin believes all three blood features can be found on the sudarium.
7: The first is the blood group, okay, which is a relatively rare blood group on the planet. There's the blood group AB, okay, and it's the same blood group of human blood on both cloths. Then there's also the differentiation between life blood, and there was blood shed in life, and post-mortem blood, which can be clearly differentiated. And again, that coincides on both cloths. And that brings us to, for me, uh, clinches the whole matter of the cloths being used on the same body. And this was a bloodshed in life, okay, while the man in question was still alive. Now, this blood comes from wounds that were made by some kind of sharp object piercing the skin in this area of, of the of the, nape of the neck. Okay, perfectly compatible with what has been called since then the crown of thorns, okay? now. If we look at this, we have exactly the same stains yeah. in the same area on the of turin. Now the actual shape of the stains, if you do an overlay of, of the two, well, the actual shape, you know, the way the blood flowed coincides on both cloths.
6: So what you're saying is not only the blood types that are the same, the
2: actual patterns of, of, of the blood on both cloths uh, can be matched. That's right. That's exactly the same. Awesome. so awesome. So so yeah, I just I think that gives you guys an idea of what, what is the claim from, from some pro shroud experts like Mark, Mark Gooskin here and stuff. So.
1: Right on, man. Thank you so much for that Dell. So go ahead, uh, if you guys want to, let's go ahead and transition into the science of this Dell. I know you said you wanted to talk about the methodology of it. So take it away, brother.
2: Yeah. So, so not so much the methodology of of the science, because the the SERP scientists followed the scientific method proper type thing, but method of, okay, what do we do with the science? Right? So the, so the science establishes, we've got, certain features, um, you know, physical and chemical features or properties of the images on the shroud in terms of the body images and the bloodstain images. But so what, how do we get a miracle out of that? Um, so in the first place, I, I've invented an approach kind of like Gary Habermas invented his minimal facts approach. I have what I call the minimal relevant features approach. Um, so I take, I only use physical or chemical properties that have been Strongly scientifically proven beyond reasonable doubt, both skeptic and pro-Shroud people all accept it. Um, and it also shares scholarly consensus. Again, uh, you know, I'm, I'm friends, both Teddy and I are, well, I'm, I'm friends with uh, Hugh Ferry, uh, the most famous Shroud skeptic in my opinion kind of thing. And he would agree with all these facts. But then we say, so what, how do we interpret that? How do we say that it's a miracle? And philosophers have uh, various ways. So number one, you've got to prove the event happens. Number two, you've got to prove that event is somehow improbable or extraordinary relative to natural law in some way. Um, And then thirdly, you've got to show it takes place as Michael Lacona would say, a context charged with religious significance. Um, So my, my sort of approach in studying the shroud in terms of the other two criteria. So with the first criteria, proving the events, I, I explained, I only use these minimal relevant features how do I prove that the shroud is extraordinary? And just in a nutshell, I think that there are th- three different types of arguments. So number one, you can argue mechanistically, you know, showing that naturalistic mechanisms are improbable to explain uh, the bloodstains and separately the body images. You can separate those out as two separate arguments, mm-hmm. or you can show that it's unique. And this kind of speaks to what you were saying before Teddy came, it's not just that the shroud's unique but it's unique despite there ha- having been a sufficient opportunity for the shroud images to have been duplicated uh through in a naturalistic context or something like that and on that front with the shroud we've got ample evidence because not only do we have natural opportunities you know we we do have a, we've lost a lot but we do have a handful of, of uh bandages and linen garments and stuff associated with bodies where you might say well there's been a a sufficient natural opportunity for at least one other thing that's uh, similar to what we have with the shroud but even more importantly we have artificial opportunities and this is the clincher for me We, we have dozens and dozens of art uh laboratory and field experiments trying to duplicate the shroud's images all of these have failed today despite Despite scientists knowing in advance what they have to get and understanding what they're aiming for, they still fail miserably. Um, and and then the third way, I guess, is you can argue circumstantially through, you know, the circumstances are, are extraordinary in some way. Uh, and then finally, obviously, is the last part, the religious context. And that's where you argue that the shroud, it, it's clearly meant to depict Jesus, the, the Jesus of the Gospels and that sort of thing. and. If the images are so extraordinary in this way, um, I, I argue that it's serving to attest to the truth of Christianity. Um, and if I once I fulfill these things, these correspond to William Dembski's specified complexity. And we can infer intelligent design and given the religious context, intelligent divine design for the purpose. So he created these extraordinary images for the purpose of saying Christianity is true Jesus died and rose from the dead so in terms of that's my methodology of how I take the scientific data and assess it and turn it into God did this.
1: Right on, right on, Dale. I really appreciate that. Guys, I have got to go. I hate it. It was a pleasure meeting you, Teddy. It was a pleasure meeting you too. It's always been fun, but I am. uh, This conversation will continue. I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to my co host, Josh. He'll lead the discussion uh, uh, with David. And uh, again, thank you so much, uh, David, for having me do this. It was so much fun. I am going, I promise. I'll put it like this. Sorry for for taking so long. I didn't know you. No, no, you're good. You are good, brother. But I will say this, you know, kind of wrapping up. I absolutely love this topic. You all have inspired me to do more research into this. And I am so excited to actually dive into that. David and I have a debate awesome. on the 24th. And as soon as that gets wrapped up, I will be interested in reading books. Teddy, um, I think Dell said you had a book coming out about this. Is that?
5: Well, I'm working on it okay. <laughs> it's probably gonna be out in, in about a year and a half.
1: Okay. So. Keep in touch and let me know whenever that comes out. I'd be, I'd love to read it, but y'all, I am going to go. Thank you so much. Uh, Josh, uh, you can have it.
5: Thank you. All
1: right. All right. See ya. Well, see ya. thanks
0: for hanging out Tyler and, uh, this is yeah this has definitely been a. as uh, you see tyler's
3: cool... easily amused right <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah this has definitely been a cool uh, uh topic um change up for me because you know like i said my 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 main focus of study is not usually on you know um certain things like like the the, the shroud or um necessarily any of the the the, the historical background stuff of of you know, tangible objects that trace back to something like. And it's really interesting, too, because as a Christian, you kind of we all have this this draw into seeing Christ as the person of God. Um, But this really draws out for me um, in some sense, more tangibly, a connection to his humanity Mm -hmm. um, in a way that's really like for me, it feels it feels more significant to think about this as a drawing back to him being fully man. Than it is thinking about it as like verification for a historical claim or uh, something that tangibly expresses the reality of miracles. I've I've seen miracles in my own life enough that I I don't doubt that. Um, but I I can I can say that the, the the real the real importance and implication for me drawing from what you guys have said so far is that this really hammers home to me that Jesus's incarnation is. Um, is not only true in the most ultimate sense, it's also fact in the most base sense that it's, it's something where um, it's almost impossible to, to, to think about the religious implications and the, the historical implications in the same sentence for me, because it's like, there's such a dissonance there to think about, you know, God as history necessarily. God is involved in history, but now God is, the centerpiece of history. Um, and I think that that, for me, that that's the most important part of what you guys are talking about, mm-hmm. uh, is if all of this is, is, is true, um, then, then what it says to me is, is beyond the miracle that Jesus is in fact the man, you know what I mean? Um, I, I I'm, I'm curious as to, to, to where you guys, um, place this in terms of your like, does this impact the way that you, um, the way that you look at history at large? Is this something that impacts the way that you guys think about um, church tradition and things like that? Is this something that kind of draws you into that circle further, or is this something that's purely like the the scientific and historical significance of the thing? Do you you, you understand what I'm asking?
5: With with me, it's um, it's not quite any of those things. What it is, is, um, and it's something that I encourage, I, I want more people uh, in the world to learn about the shroud, because it is one thing, I, I didn't need the shroud to be a Christian and to believe in God. I believed in, I've always right. believed in God. Right. Um, I believed in God at the time I learned about the shroud. But when you take something just on faith and on the arguments that even the best apologists make. You can't, in my assessment, in terms of evidence, you can't quite get it to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. You can get it to compelling enough proof to where, kind of like with Pascal's wager, uh, yeah, you know, and, and even beyond that but you can't quite get it to proof beyond a reasonable doubt, like what you would do in a, in a criminal trial, but the shroud
4: so evidence.
5: brings it. I am telling you, it brings it to that. It brings evidence of the supernatural to where, and I tell you this and I stake my credibility on this. It, becomes unreasonable to not believe that God in a supernatural realm exists. And that, that's so powerful. And I think it's so unfortunate that we have so many of these phenomenal apologists that are missing out on the P.S. de resistance in terms of evidence that takes their whole argument to a whole other level to where you can prove a miracle by the standard of that atheist David Hume to where he said that, you know, to prove a miracle, you've got to show that it basically is unreasonable to think anything else other than then what the miracle seeks to establish is true. And when you put the shroud evidence up with all of the other apologetical arguments, as well as the secular um, corresponding concurrent accounts of Christ, one of the things that I've been researching recently has been about secular accounts of the darkness at crucifixion now some people were even back then they were trying to say it was an eclipse but you know what at the time of passover the way the things are with the sun and the moon it is impossible to have an eclipse and let alone
0: one that lasts for three hours
5: (laughs) yes yes and people (laughs) were testifying to secular people just you know Scrambling, scurrying to come up with a natural explanation is nonsensical for a supernatural event. And so I like bringing in science and history and argumentation and reason and logic. All together they converge and they create this body of evidence that makes it indisputable to rational intellectually honest people it makes it indisputable that the christian god exists and i stake i stake every bit of credibility i have on that and the evidence is there and all it takes is for people to look but you know the bible but the bible says that there are people that will have eyes that cannot see and that have ears that cannot hear and that is you know willful ignorance so um and, and but, but so to me it, it's, it's the body of evidence.
0: What about you, Dale. How would you answer that question? Because it sounds like she's basically saying the opposite that I this for me is impactful toward recognizing the sharing I have with humanity with Christ. But it sounds like to to you, it's more so, the, the introduction of something that makes this concrete reality out of the supernatural and God's intervention, right? And that that, that that's the bigger bomb that drops there is that God... Yeah, it's... Oh, Teddy's trying to... Uh,
2: so I'll answer quickly. I know Teddy wants to, to respond again. But so in, in a nutshell, uh, yes, I, I think that you're right. For, for me, the significance of The Shroud is uh mostly look it provides concrete um evidence on a balance of probabilities that this is true um and then once you get that uh the theological significance comes in and you know my lord and savior died and rose from the dead for me and you know he this is proof of the incarnation he was here in the flesh but uh primarily my concern when i was studying it at first is look this is this is evidence that says this is true um strictly but but yeah Teddy I know you want to come back quickly I think we should get into the what are the actual scientific facts related to it after but just did I hear you correctly Teddy so you no longer think the Shroud is proven beyond reasonable doubt because I know at one time you
5: you oh no of course I no I no I absolutely think that the Shroud is is the burial cloth of of Christ and that it is a miracle that evidence is the miracle of the resurrection. Um, but what I was gonna say, uh, just to get back to what Joshua was saying, um, so there, so the shroud initially for me, it's all about evidence of just indisputable, proof beyond reasonable doubt that God exists. But then as I have been Getting into the deep dives of research, and when you start looking at these details, honestly, when you start researching the shroud in a serious way, you go to look up to research one thing, and five new things pop up. It, it, it normally the more you research something, you get more answers. It, it there is such a complexity, uh, and, and it, it it's just constantly grows. It is this huge mystery, but. as you you start to realize and understand the great truth of what it is and that you are looking at the image of God and you can actually see, have a good idea of what the face of God incarnate looks like and you can gaze at it. That's that's such an amazing thing. And when you read about the bloodstains And when you read about details from forensic pathologists as to what Christ must have felt like on that cross, that brings a closeness to our Savior that I do not believe can be achieved through faith alone. It brings a radical closeness to God and that has been the most incredible thing that I can, can say about, about my research, that, that radical closeness far more than, because there's, it's one thing when you are confident about something, it's another thing, I don't have faith anymore in God. I have knowledge of God. I have. Well, so Teddy, you,
3: you, know, know, that you know, know that anything not of faith is sin. So we guess that you're living in sin then because, in, <laughs> no, you know, it it's God not of faith, it. sin, okay? Come on, Teddy. At least she's not a heretic <laughs> like you. Uh, oh, yeah. God oh, really said
4: that we have we to provide a, <laughs> okay, a
5: defense for <laughs> our faith. So he doesn't expect it to be. I'm teasing you, faith. Teddy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well so to 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 uh hasten back to what what Dale was talking about um let's let's kind of transition into the uh, the more tangible evidence based portions of this what is what exactly is the data that's been found that you guys are interpreting to be true or not true what is, you, we we talked about the probability and, and ideas of how you, how it is you acquire into a past event. You can't recreate it right now to say whether or not it's true. So there has to be something other than this yes or no. But what is it that you said? You said you wanted to transition into what's the science behind what it is we're looking at? And so um, what what would what would be the like the the most prominent um, piece of the data that that kind of it, yeah so, what is it that they're testing for when they're looking at it
2: yeah so so this kind of relates to what i what i call those minimal relevant features at least in my case uh kind of thing right so uh i break it up into about seven categories so just i won't give all of them but just to give some of the main ones you know that are important so the first one that was ever discovered was the photographic negativity uh so it, it the images are photographic negative or or at the very least a quasi negative image Um, Also very importantly, it has uh, three-dimensional information or topographic information. So when you plug it into a machine like a VP8 image analyzer or something or a computer today, uh, it represents 3D images. Um, Some lesser-known ones though, for example, and these are really important when we're looking at what kind of mechanism could create these things. So the body image uniformity. So that means with the Shroud of Turin, the body image color, every individual fibril. So a fibril, there's about like 200 to 300 fibrils that make up an individual thread. These things are very, very tiny. They're they're smaller than the diameter of a human hair. Each of these are colored individually in to the exact same intensity of color. They're uniform in terms, you know, so one fiber isn't darker than another or lighter than another. So body image uniformity. Obviously, that's going to speak to mechanism, as, as I've shown. Uh, there's also body image superficiality. So the the color, the body image color, is only on the top topmost uh, fibrils, and there's three there's three levels here. So on a fabric level, it's superficial. It just means the image doesn't show up on the back of the cloth. Who cares? Uh, that can happen naturalistically, right? but it's also superficial at the thread level meaning only the top 2 to 3 fibrils those things smaller than a human hair are colored thirdly it's superficial on the level of the fibril only the primary cell wall is colored it doesn't the color doesn't penetrate past that primary cell wall that's remarkable i mean just just think of something like painting for example it's not going to be superficial paint will drip down beyond soak through beyond that so you can see why these these features are relevant um yeah there's other other features another one that's not mentioned but i think is one of the most important one is that there are wrapping distortions on the shroud that are have been mathematically proven by dr john jackson in secular scientific peer-reviewed journals so that the encodation method whatever encoded the body images onto the shroud had to travel in vertical straight line paths or curvy linear paths. Um, so this definite radiation, radiation particles will travel in vertical straight lines. Uh, some people have tried to say, well, electromagnetic, but you know, it, it puts constraints on what kind of mechanisms could possibly uh, encode in this straight line way. But yeah, there's there's other features. Uh, maybe I'll turn it to Teddy. Are there any other features? I know you're really into the blood, so maybe yes.
5: Um, with the uh, with the blood evidence, and but one other thing in terms of body image that I'd like to say, people have tried to replicate this. They've tried. They've one theory was, oh, maybe somebody got a hot statue, a statue, heated it up, put a cloth on it. To get an imprint, like through a Maillard reaction, darkness. Well, the problem. With it, I mean, it's a good try. The problem is, is that with the three D nature of a statue, when you put the cloth on the sides, it's gonna, it's gonna go around. But then, when that cloth straightens out, you're gonna have a distortion in the image. And so what that shows is that the image that is on the shroud was not gotten through a contact process, but through a type of projected on process. And something um, from the
0: inside, pushing outward is what you're saying, rather than right. the pressure being applied from the outside to conform something. This was You'll something that was expressed outward.
5: I suppose it could be argued, you know, whether energy came from outside in or inside out. But the evidence Seems to indicate that it was from inside out, and that it was the the process of the resurrection that that created the energy that left it. But I'm convinced that that the shroud, that the image on the shroud, was a purposeful thing by God to give us proof. It's for the doubting Thomases. It's not like Jesus rejected doubting Thomas. <laughs> hey, but. And so I think it's an apologetic tool, but also for Christians, we can not only see the face of our Lord and our Savior, but we also see the sacrifice. We see the bloodstains and we can look at that. and, And it's, you know, when you really look at that and when you read about especially with, it's not a crown of thorns, it's, it was a cap, because they can, they show the way the, the puncture wounds are on the back image, because, because it's, it's a frontal and dorsal image on the shroud, when you, when you look to see how high up they go, um, it, it's, it wasn't just a little circlet that, um, of thorns, it was a cap, and, um, I mean, just when you see, it's stunning, but Uh, But when you look at the blood, so Paul Vignon and others have tried to replicate these blood stains. And you think, oh, well, somebody could have just gotten some paint and brushed it on. No, no, doesn't work. It will not give you the blood stains that you see on the shroud. Because, for example, if you drop some blood onto a piece of linen what's going to happen is the blood is going to follow the the threads of the linen they call it capillarity and it's going to create almost like a star pattern like an asterisk it's not going to stay like in this perfect round way it's going to travel across threads and then there's the issue if if you were trying to paint it let's just even assume somehow that it didn't have that capillarity feature which of course it does but Aside from that, if let's say you get a, a a cup of blood and you dip your paintbrush in, well, it's not very long before that blood starts to coagulate. So how are you going to have this fresh supply of blood? So then some people, you know, would say, oh, well, maybe somebody got a, a, an animal, killed it, let it clot, or or and put it on the shroud. But there are so many, especially with the scourge wounds. All of these bloodstains that are close together, how are you gonna put multiple, let's say, rodents that you put a, a gash in and put it on the shroud? Once you start putting several, they're gonna start smearing each other.
4: Can I uh so, yeah,
5: I just, the, the I technical understand. aspects and, and the thing is is that these are not uh there's no directionality. Well, that's with image but with the blood stain what they see is that it's not whole blood but it's the transfer of blood clot exudates so the blood clotted on the skin and then transferred onto the cloth now in these in these tombs that are carved out of you know uh, stone you know from a, the side of a mountain or whatever the earth below is going to provide uh a certain amount of humidity in that you know man made cave and there's likely to be quite a bit of moisture there so that when it came time to the resurrection because we have a cloth we have a cloth that has incredible evidence as being the burial cloth of Christ yet there's no body attached to it so I had the body separate from the cloth without smearing the blood stains and they talk about menisci, the edges of a blood stain. Like if you drop some blood onto a cloth or a piece of paper, what you're going to see is raised edges. And there has been there's been quite a bit of literature talking about how these edges uh, seem to just keep going. They're not seeing that there has been a separating action. So but that fits in with how Christ was resurrected and he could go through walls. I mean, so I think he literally just went through.
0: Interesting. So not so not disturbing even the smallest trace amounts of blood on the outside exactly. of the thread. You're saying those those trace amounts have been undisturbed somehow.
5: That's that's what the literature is saying, and I'm doing further research on that, but uh, Dr. Barbet, who was a field surgeon in, I believe it was, World, yeah, World War One, he, uh, before he became, uh, you know, a chief surgeon, I think it was some Paris hospital, uh, but he spoke of that, how, you know, he'd seen plenty of bloodstained bandages and how what he was seeing on the shroud was identical to that, but he wasn't seeing the separation like, if like you have some big bloody wound and you're taking the cloth, separating it from the body, that you would expect to see breakup of the blood, but they're not seeing that on the shroud. So, the question is how did the body in a natural way separate from cloth? And I don't think that could happen. I think that's evidence and, of the resurrection.
3: And, Dale, what did
2: you want to add to that? Just a couple little add-on notes kind of thing. So so one thing um, you guys were talking about, like, oh, in terms of assuming it's radiation that formed this thing, it's like a pulse from inside out uh, of the body, and it kind of landed on the cloth. There, There is some debate in Shroud literature uh, as to what's called a cloth collapse hypothesis. So the body vanished, leaving behind a field of radiation. And when that happens, it would suck the cloth down into the radiation and the bottom up into the radiation, to some extent, Uh, that's scientifically known to happen. Uh, Whereas other scientists say, no, it's more like Bob Rucker doesn't believe in cloth collapse. So that's kind of an interesting debate kind of thing. Um, The other thing in terms of blood, so Teddy kind of stole my thunder. I I also argue for this. um, There's non-contact zones. So we know scientifically that the blood had to transfer... When it was in a liquid state, it, it's entrenched, it's not superficial, it goes through and shows up on the reverse side of the cloth, unlike the body images. Uh, so, we know it had to transfer in a liquid state. Um, and there are non contact zones where the it just wouldn't be touching the cloth in the position the body is in, uh, as depicted on the shroud, uh, at least with a naturally draped cloth. So, it would take some kind of Pressure, maybe by tying it, or you know, some people think by the bundles of spices kind of press the cloth to these areas in order to get the blood to be encoded But that would lead to what Teddy's saying: there would be some kind of smearing or ul- noticeable alteration to these, and we don't have that. Um, there's another major feature with the blood stains, and this will be the last thing I say, but it's also really important if you're looking at if you think the blood stains are painted there are no body images underneath any of the blood stains it terminates precisely not just the blood stains but the serum retraction rings that surround the outside of the blood stains that's scientifically impossible for a human being to do we had modern forensic artists doing their best there's always going to be some kind of breach of the boundaries you, you know you can't terminate your painting of a body image right at the boundary of this invisible serum retraction rings and and not do some kind of Damage to the borders of the blood stain, so that's another feature of the blood stains that's really impressive. And
3: also, are people have tried to yeah. to replicate. Well, well guys, we got before we go any any further. Uh, I think Josh is going to have to split here in a couple minutes, um, so we're just going to start wrapping up. Maybe we can do uh, a part two here. Okay. Uh, but I do know that uh, we had a couple of uh, things in the audience that people wanted you guys to, to answer, so I'm going to like transition into that phase so we can uh, move the conversation along. Uh, Daniel says, I'm curious as to why Dale prefers particle radiation over Jackson DeLorazo's suggestion of uh, VUV v radiation.
2: Uh, yeah, so I, I guess just to be honest, it's kind of the one that made the most sense to me when I when I read um, the literature by people who propose that um, type thing. But yeah, I mean, I have to be honest. The, these are both extraordinary or quote unquote supernatural type mechanisms. I, I don't have any particular bias either way. I mean, it, as long as I can get it being supernatural, I I don't really care how, how it came about. E, even people that go for particle radiation are kind of open that well, maybe there's a, I mean, we're talking supernatural mechanisms here. Maybe there's some kind of mixture of of things going about, going on or something. So I'm not necessarily bound to that. It's just what I think happens to make the most sense.
3: All right. And here's one for Teddy. I am curious if Teddy has any thoughts on Andrea Nicolati's work.
5: Well, what in particular about,
3: uh, about
5: what Nickelodeon said?
3: Not I mean, sure. He's a, skeptic, he's a
5: skeptic, so I don't really – I don't know that there's anything I agree. <laughs>
3: but, <laughs> All right, yeah. and here's, here's the last one by Daniel. He asks, can you ask, Dale, about the lack of images beneath the bloodstains?
2: All right, well, this was the last thing I, I kind of just mentioned, right?
4: But-
3: yeah, yeah, uh, yeah yeah but go, go ahead if you want if there's anything else you want to comment on it
4: yeah, so, you... oh, okay.
3: yeah oh yeah
2: yeah so I, I think i pretty much said it like th- this is incredible and it, it it definitely i mean we've tested this we've had scientific, foreign, modern forensic artists trying to duplicate this and it's impossible they, they can't they we just don't have the hand-eye-brain coordination to account for this feature
5: um
2: artistically
5: And and when they teased out, when they had a a fibril and they removed uh, the blood, they didn't see the yellowish color of the image. What they saw was the more white color of the background color. So that's how we know that the blood had to go on first as they wrapped Jesus' body in the shroud and then on the third day, that's when the image came on. So that's how we know that it was blood first, image second. And the other thing that argues against there being some sort of a forger that painted this in some miraculous way, because you'd have to believe in a miracle if you know the details. Nobody could have painted this. But but one of the things has to do with the blood stains, because if the blood stains have to come on first, then the image. And there's nothing in the shroud that shows an outline. How are they gonna know to put the blood stains in the precise areas of where the, the, the wrists are for the, the nail wound? And if somebody yeah, to right. forge it, why would they put the, the holes in the wrists when traditionally we see it more in the palm well, that's an exit wound, so it, it still could have been in the upper part of the palm, and and then landed out in the wrist. But if you're going to fake it, why why not put it where where the congregation is expecting to see the wounds? And when when people right. have had stigmata, you know, it's usually in the palm. So why would somebody fake that? If it wouldn't make sense. Yeah.
3: Right on. Well, uh, Josh, I'm going to let you wrap it, man.
0: Uh, well, I honestly, I'm, I am so engaged in what's happening and what's being discussed right now. I'm, I'm almost, it's bittersweet for me to have to go because this was really enlightening. And like I said, this was new, new, uh, ground for me to tread on, uh, in, in terms of study and, and application and things like that. And, um, you know, I've, I've been really blessed by your guys's enthusiasm and your, uh, your, your just the experience and knowledge you had to bring here. I am so appreciative of your time and your attention. Um, thank you also for the, the the awesome depth of participation that we get in, in thinking about Christ as a man uh, in the incarnation and just the the concrete aspect of, of having something that draws our attention back toward that fact. Even if it's, um, let's say, not 100% provable or anything like that, it's like, I think it's done its job. I think it's done its job. Um, I really do appreciate uh, uh, David allowing us the, the the space and the time to come on and do this, you know, uh, guest takeover thing. This has been really cool, and uh, I hope to be able to do it again. And I just really appreciate your guys's um, just overall you, the 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 level of detail that you've got you've gone into into this and. Um, it, it it remains interesting. I'm I, I'm gonna have we, to do We some haven't more even reading. really
5: hit the tip of the iceberg. I mean, oh, I bet.
0: <laughs> I bet, I bet, I um, bet. I'm sure that there's an inexhaustible amount of things that you could probably just go over. But even just the the detail about the the blood on the outside of the the fibers and just. Everything that you guys have discussed so far has given me a lot to think about and a lot to chew on. And I know that Tyler also was really excited to see this come together. And I just am so appreciative and grateful right now. But um, I do have to hop off and I got to get to a worship function at my church. I am the drummer for the worship team there. Oh. And so I'm, in, I'm, I'm involved and have an obligation. Um, I kind of wish I didn't because this is really very interesting for me at this point, um, but I do have that obligation. I have to go, but I really am so thankful and thankful for everybody that tuned in and thank you for the questioner, uh, Daniel, and thank you for um, for Dale and Teddy. I really appreciate you
2: thank both. And, and thank you Asia, so really much. Yeah, th- yeah, thank you so much. That, that's great to hear. We got someone We're really excited
5: to <laughs> spread what we know about it. And we hope that you go on to spread. Uh, information about it or or to encourage. And shroud.com is uh, the place. It is, I mean, it's an inexhaustible source of excellent information about the Shroud. Uh, And it's put together by a Sturt member, uh, Barry Schwartz, who is the photographer. And he's Jewish of all things.
3: (laughs) Right, right, and on. he's been
5: the biggest uh, source of spreading the word about the shroud, isn't it? Something.
3: Right on. Well, guys, again, guest host month continues for the rest of February. Again, we thank our hosts and our participants. Have a good day, y'all.
5: Thank you so much.